Good morning. Good morning. I am reading Michael Lewis's new book. I don't the author of The Big Short. Ah, yes. The movie yes. I've watched many times. Is the uh, almost compulsively a... one would say because I like apocalyptic scenarios. <laughs> I do. A financial event being apocalyptic is a very modern idea. Um, is the uh, film a faithful adaptation of the book? I would say yes. It is. Okay. That's Adam My McKee. Michael Lewis is married to Tabitha Soren. Tabitha Soren. Okay, yeah. No, I thought she was... Um, I'm confused. One of the original oh, yeah, MTV yeah, no. VJs. I was going to say, yeah, I thought she used to uh, date Kurt Loder or something. But, uh, right, gotcha. Tab the song. Don't be snarky. No, 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 no I, just because uh, they were um, yeah, confused in my mind. Um, yeah, I think I remember hearing about her. So is Lewis actually a journalist? Um yeah, I mean, he's, yes. Investigative. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, apparently she's more than just an MTV VJ. She is an actress and writer known for Contact, The Cable Guy, and Enough is Enough. She's been married to Michael Lewis since October 4th, 1997. Whoa, they got married one day and one year before we did. This is a nice segue. True. They have four children. Mm-hmm. We have zero children. Mm-hmm. And we uh, have always been a bit afraid of the outcome of mixing our DNA. I mean, for me, it's the concern. Has it been... could be amazing. We could give birth to the world's most genius child, or no. we oh. could give birth to a child that is, uh, you know... <laughs> In therapy since six months old and in juvenile detention by age seven. Say, no, I wouldn't. Uh, so I'm less concerned about the nature side of it, much more about the nurture side of it. I don't think we would be good parents. That's all. We're certainly not uh, good uh, pet parents. Uh, so I can't imagine we do spoil that the our pets. child out. No, one of us spoils our pets. The other one mm -hmm. treats them like pets. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess I was. I've always been a little bit afraid of uh, having children. But I mean, there there is a a slight uh, nature concern there. Um, I think I would be an especially bad parent uh, if the child presented particular challenges. So Michael Lewis's new book is on Sam Bankman Freed, mm -hmm. the young. Do you know who Sam Bankman Freed is? Yeah, I've seen him on the crawl. I've seen his name on the crawl. But do you know why he's on the crawl? Uh, yeah. Well, if you ask why he was on the crawl, what maybe six, you know what eight months ago was? or a, a a year ago, you would say he's on the crawl because he's this. Um, rogue uh, millionaire, possible billionaire, no, who wants to give billionaire. give away all his money, right? But That's you know how he became what a billionaire. We used to know him for. Now we know him because apparently, uh, his schemes for making money 
don't quite comport with established banking schemes for making money. Well, he's on the wrong side of the we built you out of your Benjamins. Well, not quite. So oh, he is the that's C- how I would say. he's the CEO and founder of FTX, yeah. which is a cryptocurrency exchange. But what happened was he funneled all of his investors' yeah. money into this bogus research company called Alameda Research well, and so now he's on trial and could go to jail for fraud for many, many years. Anyway, yes, that's because they say he made money the wrong way. Fine. Okay. No, I don't think it's how he made money the wrong way. He lost money the wrong way. Same thing. It's a thought continuum. Fine. Anyway, Michael Lewis is right. Is has written a book about him. And remember, if you will, shall we? If we will recall. Uh, one of our earlier recorded conversations, we were talking about how we don't really celebrate anniversaries or birthdays. We just kind of can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. We don't really see the point of it. And it's not this overt statement like, we're not getting married until all gay people can get married. We just can't be arsed. It's just not something that's important to us. So in Sam Bankman Freed's family, they were also the same way. <clears throat> They're like, if you want something, just let us know. We'll talk about it. We don't have to wait until Christmas. Make us guess. No. Um, so there's that foundation established. Um, I'm going to read a passage here uh, from the book. And it starts out with him just, you know, never connecting with kids his own age or any children. His He doesn't have a lot of memories of his childhood other than maybe just sort of waiting for childhood to be over. I definitely can relate to that. I I always thought the kids in my grade were just stupid and their games were dumb and I just wanted to hang out with the adults, but the adults didn't really want to hang out with me because obviously I couldn't hold an adult conversation even if I thought I could. I just felt more comfortable sitting at a table yeah. with adults. Yeah. Just kind of like how Marvin is. He just wants to be next to everything, but he doesn't want to he doesn't need to be involved in everything. He doesn't need the attention on him. So anyway, this starts with uh, Sam having to reconcile the fact that all of his young peers believed in Santa Claus, which was baffling to him. And um, so he says, here we go. So this is being written in the third person about Sam. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, Sam was aware of Santa, quote, I'd like heard of it, he said. I hadn't thought that deeply about it. He thought of Santa roughly the same way he thought of cartoon characters. Bugs Bunny existed, too, in some sense, but Bugs Bunny wasn't real. Now, at the age of eight, he realized that other children believed that Santa was real in a way that Bugs Bunny was not. It blew his mind. He went home that afternoon, shut himself in his room, and thought it over. Imagine you had never been introduced and the idea of Santa is a real thing, said Sam. And then one day, someone tells you that 95% of the people your age in the world believe in him. That this guy lives in the North Pole and has three and has these elves that he takes off with these flying reindeer. He flies into your chimney and brings you presents, unless you've been naughty, in which case he brings coal. Though for some reason, no one actually knows anyone who's gotten coal. And he does this just once a year. You're like, what the fuck? Where did that come from? 
unquote. He found his way to a solution that offered temporary relief. Relief Only children suffered from this madness. Yes, kids believed in Santa, but grown-ups did not. There was a limit to the insanity, but then a year or so later, a boy in his class said he believed in God. Sam had heard of God, too. God was like a thing on TV, he said. God came up, but I didn't think anyone actually believed in God. It told you something not just about Sam, but about his upbringing, that he could live for almost 10 years inside the United States of America without realizing other people believed in God. I never asked myself, why does God come up if no one believes in it? He said, I had never gone through the process before. I hadn't drilled down to do people believe in it. Now, Henry was telling him not only that he believed in God, but that his parents did too. So did a lot of other grownups. And I freaked out, recalled Sam. Then he freaked out and we both freaked out. I remember thinking, wait a minute, do you think I'm going to go to hell? Because that seems like a big deal. If hell exists, why do you like care about McDonald's? Why are we talking about any of this shit if there's a hell? If it really exists, it's fucking terrifying hell. This was Santa all over again, only worse. God or rather the fact that anyone believed in him rocked Sam's world. So he's trying to reconcile this God thing. And then... um. It also goes on to say that he was just sort of comatose in junior high because he was so bored and he wasn't doing well in school because he was just sitting there. Like everything was just like brushing by him. Mm -hmm. And one of his teachers had said when he was in grade school, when everybody was asked, what's, you know, 111 times 13, Sam answered the question much, much faster than anybody else. But he was so in, he was just in such a checked out stupor in grade school and junior high that his parents never thought in a million years that he could be gifted. Um, so it goes on. Uh, he was waiting for his childhood to end. And um, yeah, okay, now he gets into facial expressions. There were some things I had to teach myself to do, he said. One is facial expressions, like making sure I smile when I'm supposed to smile. Smiling was the biggest thing that I most weirdly couldn't do. Other people would say or do things to which he was meant to respond with some emotional display. And instead of faking it, he questioned questioned the premise. What's the whole point of facial expressions in the first place? If you're going to say something to me, just say it. Why do I have to grin while you do it? I can definitely relate to that. If you look at a lot mm-hmm. of pictures of me as a little kid, I'm not smiling and I'm just observing, observing, I'm looking into the camera. Like, why, why are you, why? I remember asking that question and even into adulthood when people mm-hmm. were, you know, say, saying, Beth, you know, smile or, oh my God, is something wrong? You look like you're about to cry. It's like, no, it's just my face. I have crying rest face or bitchy resting face or get out of my face. Right. Um. So very early on, Sam realized that he, uh, he'd need to acquire abilities most people just took for granted, but he also knew that he could take for granted abilities other people sweated to learn. When the teacher said that Sally, like just some student, you know, generic Sally, had 13 apples in her basket, then picked twice as many apples she already had and added them to the same basket, Sam knew faster than the other kids how many apples Sally had in her basket. Yeah, then, you know, this is what the teacher's saying. We think Sam is in exceptional intelligence. Yep. The parents think he's crazy. So he's completely checked out in junior high. He just like didn't know what to do. Um, he was like sort of this low-level depression. And then finally, um, his mother, you know, he's in junior high. His mother came home. He's crying. She's surprised. And he said, I'm so bored. I'm going to die. So they got him into a really fancy school mm-hmm. for like exceptional kids, but it wasn't really for exceptional kids. It was just for exceptional, wealthy Silicon Valley offspring. So like Steve Jobs' son mm-hmm. went there 
And he's like, it didn't help. Um, he said, uh, to Sam, it still felt unserious. It was a lot of moderately unambitious, really rich kids. Um, he didn't even bother trying to fit in. Everyone else carried a backpack. He alone showed up with a rolling bag with wheels, thump, 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 over the cobblestones on the campus. Um, he said, I was viewed as smart, as a nerd, not as good, not as a good guy or a bad guy, said Sam, not really viewed as a person, smart and inoffensive and maybe not all that human. Worse, he didn't totally disagree with his classmates assessment. I didn't feel misunderstood. I felt like there was a half-assed guesses that were in the right ballpark about himself. Um, yeah, okay. So now let's see if this is something that you might relate to. By high school, Sam had described that he just didn't like school, which was odd for a person who would finish at the top of his class. He also decided that at least some of the fault lay not with him, but with school. English class, for instance, his doubts about English class dated back to the sixth grade. That was when the teachers had uh, stopped worrying about a simple literacy and turned their attention to deeper questions. As soon as English class went from, can you read a book, to writing an essay about about the book, I completely lost interest, recalled Sam. He found literary criticism bizarre. Who cared what you felt or thought about a story? The story was the story with no uh, provably right or wrong way to read it. If they said, talk about what you like or don't like, okay, I would do that, he said. But uh, that's not what they were asking him to do. However, they were asking him to interpret the book and then judging him on his interpretation. Um, in elementary school, he read the Harry Potter books over and over by the eighth grade. He had stopped reading books altogether. You start associating it with a negative feeling and you stop liking it. He said, I started to associate books with things I didn't like. He kept his thoughts about literary industrial establishment. That's a classic Michael Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, establishment to himself through middle school, but by high school, they began to leak out of him. I objected to the fundamental reality of the entire class, said Sam of English, and all of a sudden I was being told I was wrong about a thing it was impossible to be wrong about. The thing that offended me is that it wasn't honest with itself. It was subjectivity framed as objectivity. All the grading was arbitrary. I don't even know how you grade it. I disagreed with the implicit factual claims behind things that got good grades. He sat through middle school in a stupor, but by high school, he was sure enough of his own mind that he was willing to challenge his English teacher's cherished beliefs on grounds unrecognizable to English teachers. Their belief, for instance, that Shakespeare was an especially good writer. So this is Sam. Mm -hmm. The plot twist in uh, much Ado About Nothing, typical of Shakespeare, relies on simultaneously one-dimensional and unrealistic characters, illogical plots, and obvious endings. I mean, come on, kill me. Kill someone because he thinks, with good reason, that his fiance is cheating on him. Beatrice is absurdly out of line in an unrealistic way. Benedict is absurd for listening to her, and this is all supposed to be taken in stride. To Sam's way of thinking, the case against Shakespeare could be made with basic statistics. I could go on and on about the failings of Shakespeare, but really, I shouldn't need to. The ba oops, the Bayesian uh, priors are pretty damning. About half the people born since 1600 have been born in the past 100 years, but it gets much worse than that. When Shakespeare wrote, uh, wrote almost all your um, wrote almost all Europeans were busy farming and very few people attended university. Few people were even literate, probably as low as 10 million people. By contrast, there are now upwards of a billion literate people in the Western sphere. What are the odds that the greatest writer 
would have been born in 1564. The Bayesian priors aren't very favorable, dot, dot, dot. That he still received good grades from his English teachers didn't lessen his skepticism of their enterprise. Why were they giving him an A? Why were they giving him any grade to, uh, to, why were they giving any grade to anyone for what amounted to an opinion? I convinced the teachers that I was a good student and thus I got good grades. He said it was a self-fulfilling to, it was self-fulfilling to a decent extent. They gave him an A because they didn't want to explain why they didn't give him an A. All of the humanities was like that for him. Dopey stuff. Um, oops, my Kindle is getting very sensitive to touch. Um, uh, dopey stuff he wanted mainly to escape, but that somehow always lurked just around every corner. Um, and then in choosing a college, he went to MIT. Uh, and then, okay, so then he has to take one humanities class to fulfill the requirement. So he takes some class. And he says the very first question on the final exam set him off. What's the difference between art and entertainment? It's a bullshit distinction dreamed up by academics trying to justify the existence of their jobs, wrote Sam and handed the exam back. There you go. Now, yeah. he has a point, but that's also, you know, just 20-year-old vitriol. But there's something in there that reminds me of you a little bit. I can't recall when exactly I didn't buy into Santa. Um, and so then I'm just going to finish this out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so so he's, you know, he thinks that uh, politics is basically just tribalism. They went to Europe. We did a few trips. I basically hated it. We're just looking at buildings. Um, and said, so he says to his unrelenting alienation, alienation, there was one exception games in the sixth grade. Sam heard about a game called magic, the gathering for the next four years. It was the only activity that consumed him faster than he could consume it. So. All right. Well, I was on the fence about it before. Now I definitely don't like him. Mm-mm. Um, you were on no, the fence I, bef- about him before. Yeah. But <laughs> now definitely anybody who's really into the gathering. Uh, no, look, that that's just my uh, game snobbery. Um, but you don't understand poetry. You don't understand the games. point of poetry. I've read poems to you no, before, I, I, and you're like, I don't I don't know why you wouldn't just say it. I, like I it understand is. The, the point of poetry. I understand the thinking behind it. Uh, poetry is, is one where I'm definitely just not experienced enough to have an especially valid opinion. Um, but... The reason for that is because you just draw a blank when a, you read a poem. No, uh, I don't necessarily draw a blank. Um, I don't, and this reminds me a bit of something that we've talked about before, um, about with you with like um, uh, mystery uh, novels or whodunits or something like that. Um, I don't like pondering you know, the carefully chosen and uh, you know, structured, well, how should I say this? Some poetry to me seems as though it's a sort of a puzzle. Like, oh, what do you think they meant when they said this or whatever? Or why did they choose this or that? If that's all in service of they just wanted to say this thing, if the point of sailing to Byzantium or something is saying it kind of sucks getting old, you feel out of place, something like that, I just appreciate that sentiment 
without a bunch of flowery nonsense attached to it. Flowery nonsense. Well, I don't know. Um, but I don't, you know, criticize people for enjoying poetry. That's fine. It's just not my thing. There are plenty of people who just don't get into music all that much for whatever reason. It just doesn't um, resonate with them. I think it has to be a kind of a learned or, you know, acquired skill like anything else. I suppose if I'd had a kind of life-changing experience with poetry, if I'd ever read one poem uh, that made me, whatever, gasp or uh, was a kind of an eye-opening moment, it's like, oh, I just never thought about it that way. But I think often with poetry, it's not necessarily about what the words are more or less saying. It's really about the kind of beauty or um, artistic approach to how exactly it's trying to say it. Um, I think that's certainly the case with Shakespeare. Yes, of course, the plots are idiotic, characters are idiotic. Um, we can't, you know, identify with any of these people. Now you can have, oh, it's the, it's, you know, Hamlet's just an angsty prick or whatever. That's true, and we can certainly kind of identify with that. But it's also tedious. Um, but also, I would say the whole idea of, you know, I can't identify with that character, or I really like this because this person speaks to my own experiences, or I know someone just like that person. That, too, is quite a modern idea that plots should be realistic, that characters should um, accord with our own sense of the real world. That's that's a new idea. So I, I reject that that is in itself especially important. So... So what do you think about the fact that in the 1600s there were just slim pickings in, in terms of literary geniuses? Yeah. I, you know, I think you would have to say that that's more or less true. I would say that the Bayesian analysis, when you deal with those sorts of edge cases, like who is the greatest whatever, that becomes a much... Uh, more tenuous uh, a application of, of Bayesian principle. I mean, if you're just thinking about it in terms of decision-making, uh, I think you would have to look at it more as a, a useful tool in, um, you know, just nuts and bolts decision-making as opposed to those kinds of edge cases. Uh, there's no doubt that Shakespeare is so entrenched now that we will probably be talking about him uh, thousands of years from now. Um, he might have just happened at the right time in terms of when, it, you know, when the world became uh, more literate and more interested in literature. And, um, you know, that just kind of coupled with the dominance of English culture and, and language think that's really what we'd have to attribute it to but I would say it's just as valid as 
There, there must be other candidates for the greatest playwright ever. There is beauty of language there, sure. And some of it's clever, but, you know, clever when it's uh, in music or visual art, people don't usually give clever too much due. Like, oh, yeah, you know, you, whatever, very cleverly constructed that odd time signature uh, in your, you know, 25-minute prog rock composition. But they say, well, but it didn't move me. I think a lot of people would (laughs) say the same thing about Shakespeare. It's like it's, or Citizen Kane, (laughs) for that matter. Okay, you know, everybody knows it's the greatest film ever, right? Almost certainly not, but that's what we're supposed to think. Um, And a lot of people would appreciate, you know, it's pretty goddamn clever and uh, technically ingenious. It's like, uh, it just doesn't move me, you know? Mm. Um, I'm not saying me personally. I I do enjoy it, but I haven't. You do enjoy I, I do, and enjoy I don't. What I don't enjoy it as much rock? as I should. Well, yeah, I certainly enjoy some prog rock, uh, but um, yeah, as Citizen Kane, for example, I haven't seen this many times as I should. Um, anyway, so I have had many moments reading poetry where I've gasped, really, because it's that the the turn of the phrase. It's so beautiful um, that you you get that gotcha feeling. So is it beauty? independent of whatever it's trying to express no i think that they're intertwined they have to be okay so it becomes a bit like that music and uh literature and and lyrics marry in such a way that the sum of the part you know you know what i'm saying well you may recall that i have actually a poem tattooed on the left side of my rib cage you do indeed by james merrill because it's a portion of a poem, right? Of a portion, portion of an extremely yeah. long yeah. novel esque poem. Yeah. Um, that I'm going to read it. So it goes. It's in the middle, the beginning of the middle of this poem, and it the phrase is: "The more I struggled to be plain, the more mannerism hobbled me. What for? Since it has never truly fit, why wear the shoe of prose? In ver- verse, the feet went bare. I was like, that's me. Never, but well, that's me." That whole those those lines sum up my entire identity, and I found it to be so joyful. It was such a relief yep. that somebody, you know, a few lines described it, the core of who I am, and I was so delighted in that. That and I, if you had to paraphrase mm-hmm. how you interpret that, what would you say? Yeah, it's like, well, I don't fit in, so I'm not going to try and fit in. That's the one I would have tattooed for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've come to terms with not fitting in. There you go. That to me is, it was certainly more to the point. Um, it is perhaps not as beautiful. It's certainly not as flowery, but Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about to the extent that language is supposed to be communicative, and I'm actually going to tie this into something else you were saying before, um, we should also admire the, the beauty and efficiency of prose and just saying what you mean and not trying to persuade someone to buy into the sentiment of something just by the presentation. 
just by, you know, flowering up the prose. Facial expressions, those are supposed to be communicative as well. And if you buy into the idea that we are social creatures and we're all kind of in this together and society is something other than just all the individuals, then I do actually see value in going through the motions, in doing the smiling, even when you're not feeling it. The purpose of the smile is not just to express your feelings. It is to put others at ease and some comfort level. People are very ready these days, people that we don't know very well, um, to talk about things that certainly would not have been talked about in professional environments, say, a generation ago. So when you start hearing more about your work colleagues (laughs) than you're comfortable or interested in hearing, I would say that they've violated the social contract Mm -hmm. there. Um, So, you know, whether it's David Brent um, telling Don he just had a scare with his testicles, uh, you know, or whatever, saying, uh, oh, you know, I can't come in today because I've been depressed all weekend and haven't been able to get out of bed. It's like, okay, I like the first part of the, I've accepted the first part Mm -hmm. of it. Didn't have to tag on the end. Mm-mm. I don't know why you do that. Uh, not you, obviously. Uh, others. Um, I suppose I should be more understanding in saying that they have opened themselves up by volunteering that additional bit of information. But I'm a little suspicious that they're doing it in order to demonstrate vulnerability. I think often it's just that becomes the explanation. Or it's a way to absolve themselves of responsibility of things they just don't want to do. And all the attention is on them. And they're like, yeah, oversharing is in, to me, oversharing is uh, put somebody at just as far of a distance of real human connection than not sharing anything at all. I don't know the follow-up to overshare. And maybe it's it's because well, I'm Ivana just not Well, Ivana taught us that. You tilt your that. head and you go, oh, and that's all you do. <laughs> that's, that's all you do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I was glancing at Amanda Gore's speech, the, 20 year, the 22-year-old at the time, uh, youth um, poet, poet laureate who uh, gave, the, gave the inaugural speech. Um when Biden was sworn in, where are you going? Doggy doorbell? All right, let me pause it. Um, so I was reading the, the poem that she recited as you were talking. And wh- who, who is this again? Sorry. Her name is Amanda Gore. Okay. She was the know. young woman who recited that beautiful poem that she wrote that she, dur- she recited it yeah, during it Biden's inauguration. It blew oh, every- I didn't watch that. It was a super spreader event. So I didn't. Yeah, no. It blew but, everyone it, it, away. Go ahead. Yeah. And um, I'm reading it now and I have chills. I have, you know, the hairs on my arms are standing up. I want to cry. Oh, nice. Because okay. it's so beautiful. Now, the sentiments are, 
you know, home of the free and the brave and America's awesome. And the, but, but you know, so she, she takes these common themes and she writes a poem about them and it makes you, it's so moving. I mean, in the, you know, in the, I don't know, maybe it's like 10 or 12 lines in, somehow we, um, and yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Oh, that is so beautiful. And then at the end, I was like sobbing and like halfway through and then I completely lost it. And the last four sentences of the poem, the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light. I'm not going to be able to get through this without crying. For there is always light. If only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Oh, my God. I'm done. To I'm be spent. Light. Okay. No, you know, Michael, just don't ruin it. No, no, no. I, I, it's I, just like I'm not. I'm listening. Are, I'm listening. But you're pretending to. You're pre- okay. What are you doing? I'm not. What am I pretending to do? I don't know. You're just very uncomfortable because I'm crying and you're trying to like. I love it when ladies <laughs> cry. What are you talking about? Oh, nothing better. All right. Gosh, that's just the most incredible poem. She's 22 years old. She wrote this. Very nice. Good. I'm very, very nice. No, I'm very pleased for it. You're I, very pleased. I, I, I take your word for it that it's a very uh, moving and uh, inspiring poem. Okay. Thank you for taking my word for it. I do. I trust you on such things. Okay. <laughs> See you later. What? I don't know. Oh, man, I'm in trouble. See you later.